Oh, it's right there. Sometimes things are right in front of you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. And I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning in the announcements. Especially if you're visiting with us, we hope that you will feel really welcome here. We're in the gym temporarily as renovations are being done in our sanctuary, but it's going pretty well. Do you think? Yeah, a lot of a lot of work and grace. So I didn't mean to cut off the applause. I love that. <laughs> so this is the fifth week of our series in the book of Genesis. And as we've seen, God created the world and us to be good. And I think this sermon series has been really good, too. I don't know how you're experiencing it, but uh, I love that we're wrestling with the meaning of these things. And I've gotten more emails already in this series than I can remember ever having gotten before in the sermon series. And that is great. Some of those emails challenge me. Some of those emails uh, want to explore something further. And I love that. So today we come to marriage. We're going to look at Genesis 2. And we're going to see how being made in the image of God leads us into relationship and a particular kind of relationship. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Dear God, we thank you that you are the creator. And as we've prayed each week in this series, as the whole Bible begins, Holy Spirit, would you hover over us as you hovered over creation at the very beginning? It's only through you that we have the hope of more and more reflecting your great goodness and love. So, Spirit, would you come and teach us? Would you come and love us, encourage us, challenge us, shape us more and more into your likeness? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And I actually, I really liked it. A few weeks ago, I forgot to print out the scripture reading, and so I had to come out here and read it from in the middle. And I had to duck a bit, too. A little closer, okay. Um The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
This is the word of the Lord. So as we reflect on this passage this morning, we're going to focus on three themes in it. First of all, the beauty of marriage and its temptation. Secondly, the challenge of marriage and its conflict. And thirdly, the key to marriage, which is to reflect and to receive God's humility in Christ. So when the man sees the woman for the first time, he bursts out into song. Regular words aren't enough. He needs art to describe her. This is poetry. That's why it's set differently in your Bibles. There's a margin. This is a song. It's something exuberant. And in Hebrew, it starts with this word that in our English translations is rendered as now. Which means at last. It means finally. So Adam's saying, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And what is that? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's saying, I have found myself in you, to Eve. He's saying, you help me to figure out, to understand, to grasp who I truly am. And that is powerful. So Adam has a perfect relationship with God at this point. And yet he's still this captivated by love and romance. It's a beautiful thing. But it's also where we get a glimpse of the temptation of marriage. You might think that the biggest risk in getting married is that you would end up in a bad marriage. But in fact, there's also danger in a good marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, to use biblical language, it's the temptation to make an idol out of marriage, to worship marriage itself. There's something so powerful about marriage, and it can be, so fulfilling that unless you deliberately guard against this, you may find yourself looking to your spouse to give you what only God can really give you. You may look to them to give you ultimate love and meaning and affirmation, all these things which you can only really get from God. In other words, you may end up looking to your wife or your husband to save you. When I do premarital counseling with couples, which is something I really love to do, once in a while I meet a couple that is so obviously, and dare I say it, sickeningly in love, (laughs) that I take the flip chart and I just, sometimes I write in a flip chart, you know, when I'm in sessions, premarital counseling sessions, I take the flip chart and I put it between them. I just sit right down there, you know, just a little bit of distance can't hurt at that point. Marriage can be dangerous because no human relationship can bear the weight of those kinds of expectations, those romantic, romantic expectations we have around marriage. In the end, if you go into marriage thinking primarily that that is what marriage is about, it will crush your marriage. Now, maybe you struggle with the reality, if you're married, that your spouse doesn't give you what you need. He or she is not making you happy. Maybe you can't settle for anything less than this picture of blissful love that you have in your mind, which partly arises from what we've read in Genesis 2. And you've got to have it because you're looking to marriage to give you what only God can give you. When you can't be content with the good things in your life 
because your marriage isn't perfect, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. Maybe the most common way that single people do this is by longing for marriage. You want to be married so badly that you can't rest in your singleness and enjoy it. Now, some of you who are married are wondering, is is the pastor really saying that I should love my spouse less? That wasn't the advice I was expecting about marriage this morning. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, it is probably impossible to love any human being too much. You may love them too much in proportion to your love for God, but it is the smallness of your love for God, not the greatness of your love for the person that constitutes the inordinacy. What is inordinacy? It's the quality of being immoderate, disordered, without restraint or proportion. It's a lack of health and balance. And so marriage will inevitably disappoint us unless we have a vital personal relationship with God. So married people, you need that or you will not be able to deal with the flaws in your marriage and in your spouse. And single people, as Justin said so well last Sunday, remember that Christianity is the only major world religion that was founded by a single person. In traditional societies, and, and we have those, some of you may come from that background in our world today, but certainly in the ancient world, that's all there was. In traditional societies, you're nobody unless you're married. But Christian faith was started by a single person. The Apostle Paul, I think, gets at this beautifully in back-to-back chapters in 1 Corinthians, where In the one chapter, he says marriage is amazing, and then right in the next chapter, he says singleness is also just as amazing. And that was totally unique in ancient times. There was no other religion that was saying that not only is singleness okay, but it's a calling from God. It's blessed. Paul says that the relationship every Christian has with God through Jesus Christ is so intimate and the relationships we have in the church as brothers and sisters are so close or should be so close that you are equally blessed as a single person. How do we practice this? Well, I would say if you've been married for more than 10 years, would you consider reaching out to a young married couple? coming alongside them, encouraging them in whatever way you can think of, getting to know them. Or if you're that young couple, would you consider looking for an older couple, an older married couple who you could build a relationship with, who you could share some of your struggles with maybe even at some point? For Judith and I, that couple is Judith's older sister, Robin. Judith's the fourth of four children, so her oldest sibling is quite a bit older. And Robin and Philip live in Kitchener, and we have been able to be really open with them about some of our struggles, and they have prayed for us, and it's been really good. So if you're married, invite single people into your life. Don't be that stereotype of the married person who just hangs out with other married couples. And if you're single... Get involved in your church community. Take that step, though it may be a risk. Hang around people, and you will find, I trust, that the family of God becomes more than just words, but a reality for you. But above all, whatever situation you find yourself in, serve others. Don't be captivated by marriage. Become captivated by Jesus. 
And he will send you out. He will love you. He is enough. So we've looked at the beauty of marriage and its temptation. Next, we cover the challenge of marriage. Look at verse 18 with me if you've got your Bible open or it may be on the screen as well. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Hebrew word translated here as helper is used in the Bible to refer to the rescue that comes with military reinforcements. It's a word that God that is used often to describe God as saving the Israelites from defeat. Helper is a military word, a strong word. It's a word that evokes divinity, and it's used here in Genesis 2 to describe Eve. What the woman brings into the man's life is a strength, but it's a particular kind of strength. You see that word suitable? Well, other translations put it like this. In the New Revised Standard Version, it's a helper fit for him. In the King James Version, it's a helper meet for him. But in the Hebrew, there are actually two words that literally mean, I will make a helper like opposite him. Like opposite? What's that about? Doesn't it have to be one or the other? You can't have both, can you? Well, yes, actually you can if it's a complement. You can think of two pieces of a puzzle. They fit together, but they're not identical. If they're identical, actually, they won't fit together. On the other hand, they can't be different in general. They have to be rightly different. They have to be like opposite. They have to be perfectly complementary. And so God is sending someone into Adam's life. And obviously this goes both ways. He's doing the same for Eve. He's sending someone with power, but power which is different, which is like opposite. And what difference does that make? Well, the poem tells us. When you get married, you encounter a person of a different gender, a person with mysteriously profound differences from you. And then you're thrown into this incredibly close relationship. How close? It doesn't get any closer. One flesh. That's how close. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here, Adam's not talking about bodies. It's the lives, the persons, the personalities coming together as one. He's saying marriage puts you in the same space. Two very different people living in the same home. What do you think will happen? You're going to fight. Remember, helper is a military word. You're meant to be on the same side, but sometimes that shifts, doesn't it? And so it turns out that... The great theologian Pat Benatar (laughs) was absolutely right when, in 1983, she sang that love is a battlefield. And yes, that's your 80s music reference. (laughs) We talked about that. Our church actually started in this gym. We rented it back when this was a functioning school in 1980. And so, as a way of having fun with being back in the gym, we're bringing some 80s music to bear. I've been married to Judith for 20 years. We see things quite differently. In fact, we are almost exact opposites when it comes to those Myers-Briggs types. Now, even if you're more of a match for your spouse when it comes to personality, you are different, I'm sure you would agree. 
Judith sees things in the world and things in me that I would never have noticed that I didn't even understand. And I do that for her. And yes, we've had our share of disagreements, even arguments over those 20 years. But after all that time, I not only know what I think, but I also know what she would think in a way. I have her wisdom. And I have to tell you, I'm a lot wiser for that. Some of you at this point should give me an amen. amen. (laughs) Honestly, I'm a different person, thanks to Judith. And I've become that person only through the conflict and only through the differences. All of that by being close to someone who is like opposite me. But here's the problem with marriage in our culture, and it's one of the reasons why people aren't getting married as much as they used to. We are consumers. We are trained to be consumers, and consumers always do a cost-benefit analysis. You do it automatically without being even aware that you're doing it. You've been shaped that deeply by consumerism. You want a product that will satisfy you, not one that fights back. You expect a product that's going to meet your needs. You don't want the opposite. And so we get into marriage and things get rough and we think, well, this isn't right. This isn't supposed to be like this. It's supposed to make me happy. Why am I always in conflict with this person? Well, it's because marriage is meant to challenge you or you will never become the person God wants you to be. It's not just Eve who is brought into Adam's life with her gender differences to help him. Look up Ephesians 5. It's the same thing as Genesis 2. It's Adam being given to Eve in the same way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And so husbands, you're called to make sacrifices for your wife, sometimes great sacrifices, in order to help her become the person she's supposed to be. I love how Stanley Hauervas puts this. I don't think I'm ever going to preach on marriage again without quoting Hauervas because this is so good. He writes, beware of the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. But this overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that, wait for it, we always marry the wrong person. It's possible you've seen some romantic comedies that would suggest otherwise. We always marry the wrong person. We never know who we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means that we are not the same person after we've entered it. You always marry the wrong person. You always marry someone who will not be able to fulfill you. They will disappoint you and you will fight with them. But marriage isn't designed for you to confront your spouse and to try to change them. Rather, it's designed so you will confront yourself. It shows you your sins. It shows you your selfishness. And if you let it, God will use it to open you up to his transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that could happen in your marriage? So 
So you've got these two extremes. On the one hand, there's the temptation to turn marriage into an idol and to have this romantic view of marriage that's naive and unrealistic. On the other hand, there's the reality of conflict in marriage, which can lead to disillusionment and cynicism about marriage. Is there any hope for us through this? Well, yes. I want to say that the key to marriage, and this is my third point, is a kind of humility that only the gospel can give you, that only comes from God. You see this also in verse 18. It was not good for the man to be alone. Well, that's a surprise if you've been reading along with us from the beginning of Genesis. Up until now, everything has been good or even very good. But think about this with me for a second, okay? How could something not be good in this garden created so perfectly by God? The only way you can explain this is to conclude that God made human beings to need not just him, but also to need others, other relationships. That's remarkable. If, if I had been God, I would have made human beings to be like a loyal puppy dog. Let me introduce you to the McLeod's puppy. We've had her for two days. We haven't named her yet. I want to call her Melchizedek, which I know is a male name, but I love it. My family disagrees with my name choice, but it does say in Genesis 2 that the man named all the animals, right? Yeah. Oh, I heard some booze. <laughs> See, we have this relationship. You guys push back. Yep. But okay, God didn't want us to be like his puppies. He didn't want us to only have big, cute, and they do already melt my heart, big, cute puppy dog eyes for him alone. No. He made us to need others. That is some kind of remarkable, incredible humility. It's wild that God would be that selfless and sacrificial. But it's nothing compared to what we see later in the Bible. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, God says, I am the bridegroom and you, my people, are the bride. And that teaches us that we need God in our lives, not just as someone who we believe in, not just as someone to obey, but you need God in your life as your spouse, as your ultimate helper. He's like you, but he's not at all like you. He's like you because you're made in his image, personal, relational, but he's unlike you because God is holy and perfectly good. You'll never be the person that you were created to be unless you come into a personal relationship with the God who knows you and loves you more than anyone ever will or can. He's got to be in your life intimately. There's got to be interaction, prayer, listening to him through his word, waiting on him. Back in August, Judith and I started doing something we've never done before in our 20 years of marriage we started doing our morning devotions together. And we used the same guide for that. And it has been amazing. 
It's like our affection for each other and our affection for God have become aligned and have fed off each other, informed each other, and there's a new harmony when we make the time to do that. Why is this so important? Because you need God and you need his love. You won't be able to make it otherwise. The groom is only with the bride because he has given her his heart. And that's why God describes his relationship with us in these terms. God's saying, I have given you my heart. And how you act and how you live and how you treat me is actually going to hurt me. When you say, I believe in God, but really you live for money, you live for success, you live for anything else, any number of good things, that is a kind of adultery. And God is betrayed and feels grief far more than you would feel it if your spouse was unfaithful to you. And some of you have lived through that experience, so you know God's heartbrokenness more than any of us. As I read from one commentator this week, this means that we, God's people, are the spouse from hell. And God is the one who sticks with us in the longest-lived, worst marriage ever. How's that for a pick-me-up on Sunday morning? (laughs) But that's the very reason God sent his son to us. That's the whole history of the Bible. I encourage you to go to Ralph's course starting the Sunday after Thanksgiving because we read the Bible in bits and pieces. But here we see an image. We have an analogy, a way of understanding our relationship God that run, with God that runs through the whole of the Bible. In John 1, it says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. He was trying to get us back. But we didn't just spurn him. We nailed him to the cross. Some of you may be in bad marriages right now, and it may feel like torture. But in God's case, the torture was real. And when he was on the cross looking down, and when he realized what it would take for him to stay and to love us to the end, what did he do? He stayed. Here is ultimate love. Here's the spouse with no illusions, who doesn't expect us to be perfect, he knows we're not. He loves us not because we're lovely. He loves us to make us lovely. He loves us for our sake, not for his sake. And so he is the perfect spouse and helper. But there's more. When two people get married, they have all things in common. And sometimes... Couples are so eager to get married, you know, they wake up a few years later and realize, oh my gosh, look what happened. (laughs) So when we are, as God's people, the bride of Christ, all that Christ has is ours, and all that we have is his. And I got to tell you, that is a pretty good deal for us. Martin Luther puts it like this, and I had to quote Luther, having quoted Pat Benatar, there's a bit of a balance that emerges. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation, and we are full of sin, death, and condemnation. But let faith step in, 
and then sin, death, and hell belong to Christ. And grace, life, and salvation belong to us. Therefore, as Christians, we put on the wedding ring of faith and become free from all sin, fearless of death, safe from hell, and endowed with eternal righteousness and the salvation of our husband, Jesus Christ. Is that not the most amazing good news? Friends, that is the gospel. If you know that Jesus died for you and that you are united with him together with his church, you have the key to conflict in your marriage because the main thing you need for a marriage is to take all the ways your spouse has wronged you and will wrong you, has hurt you and will hurt you, and to see them in the light of Christ. We have all wronged Christ, and yet he always forgives us. You are loved enough by him that you can offer the same grace to your spouse as the Holy Spirit leads you and makes it possible. It's also the key to deal with the temptation to idolize marriage. If you look at your spouse and you feel unhappy and disappointed with your marriage, or if you're single and you're saying to yourself, why can't I be married? Turn to Jesus because he is the only spouse who's really going to save you and fulfill you. And the great wedding day, which we read about at the end of the Bible, so the Bible starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. The great wedding day, when you fall into his arms, is the only thing that will really make everything right in our lives and in the world. And it is waiting for you if you put on the wedding ring of faith. It's up to God to know what you need to grow in grace and what you need to grow into the person you were created to be. So let him rule your life. Trust him. So we've seen the Bible begins with a wedding. And its original purpose was to fill the world with the children of God. And it failed. Why? Because the husband in that marriage failed to step in and to help his wife when she needed them. We're going to read more about that the next time we come back to Genesis. But at the end of time, there will be another wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. You can read about it in Revelation 19. And it will succeed where the first wedding failed. Because the true Adam, who is Jesus Christ, will never let down his wife. He will never let you down. Nothing can ever separate you from his love. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you created us in your image for relationship. And we thank you that you created marriage also. And Lord, it's hard. Many of us know that have pain and scars to show that. But Lord, we praise you that you are with us through the hardest times. And you bring healing into our lives as we turn to you. And your promise is that you will never leave us and never forsake us. In the end, all human marriage lets us down. But you never will. So whether we're married or single this morning, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you will 
Enable us to trust you more, to receive that love and grace that you offer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.